G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As you know, with the coronavirus, it's not just a health crisis. There has been an economic collapse. Our governments, federal and state, have been strategizing to minimize the impacts. And there are challenges in getting employees back to work, supporting businesses to emerge from hibernation, and of course the return of economic confidence. These things are all tenuous in the face of a possible new wave of COVID-19 as the states have been taking tentative steps to emerge from lockdown. So today I focus on what lies ahead, emerging from the economic crisis. How does the future look to you? Will it change the way we work And how we live our lives. Well, many are saying that a crisis like this enables us to reimagine our future. And that might mean asking how our Christian faith and practice might impact on what will become the new normal. Well, our special guest through this coming hour is former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson. He's known as one of Australia's elder statesmen. He served Australia through a time of great reform in the Howard era. His latest contribution is in gleaning wisdom on politics and culture from some of the world's great thinkers and presenting those in a podcast program called Conversations. And you can see those when you simply search for John Anderson Conversations on YouTube. But we're in for a great conversation, no doubt, ahead in this next hour. And I want to make a special welcome to 2020 uh, to John Anderson. John, welcome. Good to be with you again. John, one of the biggest things, and let's start with uh, setting a scene here, because the impacts of coronavirus, not just a health issue, although for some the health issue seems to outweigh the economic impact, but there is a tremendous collapse of our economy and the world's economies right now. It's very sobering. I wonder if you've got some thoughts on just how serious the coronavirus collapse in our economy is. Uh, well, I think the, the short answer is that it's already serious. We don't know how much more serious it's going to get because we actually don't yet have the full figures on where we've landed. We don't know what businesses will survive. We don't know how many people will need to be on welfare. And we don't know whether we are through this yet. Those are the broad and awful realities. And In some ways, my first and preliminary remark would be that the lesson we need to learn out of this is a little humility, we're not in control. We are not the masters of our universe, the way in which so many clever, in inverted commas, Westerners, particularly elites in our universities and what have you, sorry to say this, but I believe it to be true, have tried to pretend that we are. We're not. And we need to take a good dose of humility and recognise the realities of life. Suffering can't be airbrushed away. We don't control it. Uh, We don't dictate our future and our fortunes any more than we dictate our arrival on this earth 
or our departure from it. That doesn't in any way obliterate the need for good sound policy thinking and action, but it is to set the stage and remind ourselves that we don't have all the answers. We're not in control. And when we look at the news headlines uh, each evening on the TV and uh, there are prime ministers and premiers who are uh, addressing the nation, uh, talking about the way that they are handling the crisis. Uh, At the moment, borders are closed. Uh, Queensland, Western Australia, Tasmania, South Australia, the Northern Territory, and everyone feeling like uh, there are other premiers ganging up on them because they haven't opened borders. Uh, There are a lot of people right now trying to do, no doubt, the right thing, and, uh, and, and of course, this is causing tensions because there are not everybody who agrees. What are your thoughts on, on the rising tensions now that are coming out of the economic collapse? It's a very good question now because um, I think that there is a huge core of pragmatic, sensible middle Australians who have been desperately waiting for national cooperation in the face of what they think are great needs to... You know, run a strong economy, keep jobs secure, you know, justice, all the things we look to our, our, our societies for and the, our governments and we've been worried about them. Now we've seen the stroke of brilliance from the Prime Minister and that's what it was for a national cabinet to get over the problem of brawling states and politicians constantly shifting blame. Only, and you can almost hear the groan in the Australian community to say, oh no, here we go, as we move out of it again, some of them are back into point scoring. Where's the cooperation? That window that we saw through and recognised that our leaders could do better. So I think there's a warning in it, frankly. I think the Australian people know that this massive change, and it goes way, way beyond coronavirus. We've learnt all sorts of things we can no longer avoid. Um, uh, it requires us to now be recognised and need to pull together Um, uh, and respond to this great change with significant and serious policy shifts on the economy, on securing vital industries and their supply lines. Uh, We now know that we've been overly dependent for hundreds, literally hundreds of components for essential goods in this country on an authoritarian regime that's been trying to corner the market to control us and other countries. And we face um, a, a very rapidly deteriorating, if you like, balance in the global strategic arrangements. Uh, all countries are weakened, but we don't know who will be weakened the most out of it. Uh, China is weakened, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but America is weakened, there's no doubt about that. How much? What will the balance look like afterwards? What will the troublemakers make of their opportunities out of this? You know, Iran, frankly, Russia, North Korea... So this is a very sobering time and we should not be smug and one of the first things I would say is that it would be a good start to recognise that virtue doesn't lie with one group of people or another group of people or with identity politics or with political correctness. See, our children have grown up thinking to be virtuous, you have to align with the latest um, concern in the public arena. Uh, whether it's a social issue or whether it's an environmental issue or whatever, we've forgotten the classic and the Christian virtues that underpinned our society. And I'll rattle them off. Prudence, 
which is not just being cautious. Prudence is assembling all the information and knowledge you can to make wise decisions and then put them into action for the greater good. That's what prudence is. Don't we need a good dose of prudence at the moment? Like never before. Justice. We've got to be fair about this. This pandemic has not been fair in one sense. It's attacked older people, but younger people have had to give up their jobs and what have you when they're not really at risk. So we've got to be careful coming out of this that what we do is fair and gives those young people a shot at getting back to where they might have been otherwise. Um, and they, but they have to remember next time they might be the ones under the, the, the victims. The Spanish flu took young people. This one's taking old ones. Um, uh, then there's um, uh, um, um, courage. We need courage. We're going to need a lot of courage. We can't keep hiding our head under the pillow. We've been asleep as a nation. We can't afford to be asleep anymore. Then there's temperance and, 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 pr- and uh, um, moderation. We've got to avoid the wild extremes of the past and the narrow focus on some issues while others creep up on us. Then I could start on the Christian virtues, which really make a society work if we engage in faith, hope and love. We might get to some of those as our conversation continues. Let's just focus, though, and as you raise all of the global tensions that are already really uh, exacerbated by what's happened with coronavirus and and uh, you're bringing in here Iran and what's happening perhaps in Russia. But let's focus on China for a few moments because here we are, like the meat in the sandwich, uh, drawn between China, our greatest trading partner, uh, the US then is our biggest ally. And so what's happening with the tensions between China and the US leaves us leaning one way and then another. What are your thoughts for how that whole tension has its effect on Australia? Well, it's, you know, these are very, they're very dangerous times, frankly, for everyone, not just Australia. Uh, as Neil Ferguson, in one of the conversations I had with him, put it, uh, the three greatest dangers to Western freedom in ascending order. So the least of the three, Islamic terrorism, then the chance of miscalculation between the superpower and the rising superpower, America and China. But at the top of the list, he put our own lack of confidence and belief in our own values and underpinnings. Uh, So you see that particularly in America, a nation now so polarised, so divided... But then you see China where you have an authoritarian regime and we need to keep this in mind. We've been, all our cultural elites have been saying, let's walk away from God. Let's walk away from the idea that we could be accountable to a higher moral authority and higher moral laws. We know best. Well, there's an alignment there with a communist state that says there's no God, there's no higher authority, we are a law under ourselves. So the way we will order ourselves is we will demand loyalty to the party. Your loyalty, uh, your first loyalties line, not to your family and not to your community, not even to your religion or your nation, they lie to the party. Now that's chilling, and we need to be very clear in our own thinking about which ideology we line up with. Uh, I believe that communism is a deeply, deeply flawed theory. People say, oh, no, the problem's only that it was never applied properly. No, it's not. It's a flawed theory because it demands we give our loyalty to the party. What is the party? A collection of failed human beings or flawed human beings because we're all flawed. 
why would you want to give your loyalty to a party that then determines what is right and wrong, literally determines what's right and wrong? There's no other authority. And who decides who should be free, who should get a job, how much we'll watch you, how much we'll monitor you. Uh, you know, uh, we need to be very clear in our thinking. And I think, frankly, look, with some upsides. I think the Australian people uh, have suddenly been reminded, and they're willing to be reminded, that our way of life is a good one, that we want to be able and we need to be able to trust our leaders and our medical experts that we expect them to lead, and while they do it properly, we will follow that will become critical to our thinking, Neil, as we move forward because there are really difficult issues. None of them new, but all of them now made much more urgent and impossible to ignore because COVID-19 has, if you like, it's accelerated history. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Our special guest this hour, former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson. We're talking about emerging from the economic crisis that's come along with coronavirus. John, let me just take you back to something you mentioned uh, with regard to the idea of a nation being confident in its own underpinnings. And this brings that thought to the fore about what's been happening in Australian universities because there's been long concern here that uh, there's a neglect of being able to teach uh, the ideas of those underpinnings that have been part of our Western civilization, which have obviously had those Christian foundations. But uh, the underpinnings are in question here because it does seem because our universities are very left-leaning that there is a revisionist approach to our history trying to wipe away those underpinnings that we've understood. What are your thoughts for how we might get those underpinnings back in our Australian society? Let me put it to you this way. I wonder how many school children today could tell you what the classic and the Christian virtues are or were. There were seven of them, essentially. And uh, Western freedoms were basically built on argument around those seven virtues. And uh, uh, they've been unbelievably important. And when you stop and think through what each one is, you recognize that they are fundamental to a free-functioning uh responsible society where people can flourish. Now, what have we done is instead, because we're all moral beings, uh, uh, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, the, the, the most unfortunate prostitute in the back streets of London still has a strong moral code. Uh, as, um, as Michael Ramsden uh, said, says, uh, we all have a strong moral code. Join the mafia and steal the boss's silver and see what happens to you. So we all have a strong sense of morality. What do our young people now think of as virtue, they've been encouraged to think that it's tied to identity. This group or that group with these grievances or those grievances, whether they're real or imagined grievances, are the virtuous people because they've been maligned and downtrodden and oppressed. Sometimes there may be some truth in that, but that doesn't mean that that's where virtue lies. The greater virtue would be to love them not involve them in an endless brawl over human rights where the boundaries are set by technocrats in our big cities, but rather by the timeless virtues that have guided our forebears. 
Now, the second point that I would make is that part of this new understanding of virtue is that you should be tolerant of everybody, but we know it doesn't play out in practice. So we're taught in our universities no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, but actually, we don't believe that at all. We leave our universities and we go out into the workplace where we condemn in the most absolute terms anybody who disagrees with us. We don't believe in tolerance at all. We don't believe in diversity. We don't believe in inclusiveness. If you dare to differ in a social media age, you can be cancelled with tragic consequences. We've become unbelievably judgmental and with it. Another great price we've taken for rejecting our traditional virtues, we're losing the ability, the key to sustaining relationships because we think we're virtuous and somebody else is not and my group has a monopoly on right and wrong and your group, well, they're just terrible because of X, Y and Z. You see, um, there's no room to admit your own failings. You can't be failed. You can't be flawed. The other people must be wrong. That, what does that do? That wipes out forgiveness. Because the great key to making relationships work, anyone in a successful marriage knows this, is being able to forgive and forget. But as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, a uh, great thinker in English, uh, as, we've learned, as we've forgotten how to forgive because we think virtue's on our side and other people are wrong, uh, I'm putting words in his mouth here, but this is the essence of it. We can only hope that you can forget, but the trouble is you can't forget now because social media records everything we've said and done. Yeah. So, um, look, this stuff has come through the universities and it's filtered through to the schools. And I think it's to the great credit of the Australian people that they've seen through an awful lot of this stuff and don't believe it. What we've got to do now is to encourage them and facilitate them looking back to, I'll call it this, the wisdom of the ages. And this has been the great failing of many uh, of the sort of philosophical approaches that are taught in our universities. It's to say that conservatism is always wrong because we know better than those who have gone before us. We don't know better. The distilled wisdom of the ages is there for the asking, and we need it now. John, wisdom of the ages, and of course we're in a conversation today, you have a strong Christian faith, I have a strong Christian faith, many of the listeners to our conversation today will be saying, well yes we understand the wisdom of the ages comes from God, the God of the Bible. But that's got to somehow rather translate back into the national psyche. And I wonder whether in such a crisis time like this that we may be headed towards a new debate about those virtues you're talking about, a new debate about the sort of values that our nation stands for. And I think that in a lot of nations around the world, there's going to be a rise of nationalism because the borders are closed in nations around the world and people are going to be thinking about what it is that makes our nation different, what sets us apart, what makes us strong. And nationalism can be good or it can be very bad. But I wonder whether Absolutely you feel right. like yep. I wonder whether you feel like we might be moving into a time when we are getting into this sort of conversation about values and virtues and, and even an, a new nationalism for Australia? Uh, two comments. Firstly, you're absolutely right to say there's a good and noble nationalism and there's a terrible and evil nationalism, and we want the former, not the latter. 
that means we want to be good global citizens. We don't want to lord it over others, but we really need to identify strongly together as Australians, loving one another, caring for one another. The golden rule, do unto others as you'd have do unto yourself. The second comment I'd make comes out of it. If we don't have that debate, and if we continue to think that virtue and political correctness and identity politics can guide us as we all clamour for our own corner to be defended at, and, and fail to concentrate on the need to pull together and find common values, we are finished. Mm. And this comes down to leadership here, the idea that our leaders might be able to help to refocus those common Australian values. And I wonder whether you've got a, a general comment, because we're coming up to news, around our national leaders at this time, whether they've got what it takes to be or to introduce or to reform those sort of principles that are going to help us move forward. I think the answer is that some do, and we can be very thankful for that. Uh, and I include the Prime Minister in that. Uh, I know he's had a rocky uh, time since the last election up until this time, but the polls are rightly rewarding him for the leadership he has shown, uh, and I think he is rising to the occasion, and I think we need to brace ourselves now to support him as he seeks to move us out of this, because I think there will be a lot of people, not all of them in politics, who will want to revert to the old ways, put it this way, um, the uh, sort of love thy neighbour version of politics is what Kennedy was appealing to when he said, ask what your, not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We've been in the business of identifying grievances. As somebody illustrated to me the other day, a girl from the north, um, uh, uh, northeast suburbs of uh, of uh, north northwest suburbs, sorry, uh, upper north shore of Sydney, went to university thinking that she was an extraordinarily fortunate girl, and within 12 months, you know, her courses had convinced her that she was actually terribly deprived and a ter and a victim. Well, uh, we can't have this business. There are victims, uh, and we ought to love them and be concerned for them. We ought to be on the outlook for them. The fact that we haven't cared enough for them has probably meant that many of them have felt they've got to get outraged politically. John Anderson is our guest this hour, and John, let's take, let's come back to the challenge that is before us in our nation. The government's set up a stimulus package that is set to run out in September. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts about what happens when September rolls around. Well, uh, look, I think if we take the optimistic view that. There's likely to be a second round, but we'll probably be much better at containing it. It is reasonable to assume that things will be reverting to normal by September in most areas of the economy. Um, I think that the biggest danger areas would be uh, resumption of international flights and the impact that'll have an impact on business and on tourism, particularly for states like Queensland. And for the people who work in aviation, in hospitality, in tourism, I think too that there will be some impact. People have got used to meeting uh, electronically. Now, we all prefer to meet face-to-face, -face, but I think, again, we'll have some impact on the travel industry, and that's an important part of the Australian economy. I think, frankly, the other aspect that will be very difficult to handle is that we just don't quite know where the debate about secure supply lines and what we should manufacture here and how we should try and get manufacturing going again. 
will be a big factor. We need to, I, I'm a little cautious in saying this because I don't have the figures in front of me, but I understand Australia has decarbonised or de-industrialised faster than any other developed country over the last 10 or 15 years. So getting manufacturing going again will be very difficult and it will require us confronting the debate that's divided us over energy and climate. Without cheaper energy, we won't get a manufacturing sector back. It won't happen. Uh, we're just not competitive. Wow. So there's, a, there's some big issues there. Now, that is a big conversation on its own. But coming back to a new stimulus package, and no doubt there are people in government now who are trying to put figures together about how that might happen beyond September. What we might be concerned about is how a new stimulus package, given that the latest stimulus package has plunged us into incredibly deep debt, that the deepening of the debt is likely to continue. I wonder whether you've got any reflection on just how serious that is. Yes, I do. I've always been concerned about public sector debt because it's not government debt, it's taxpayers' debt. Now, Queensland has an exquisite and very dangerous problem there. The Queensland public sector debt is horrendously high and it is going to be a real headache for the next generation of Queenslanders who haven't incurred the debt but have to pay for it and have got almost nothing to show for it. It's not as if it built a lot of new smart infrastructure. Most of it's gone on recurrent expenditure. It's just money gone with a big debt left behind. But look, let's try and frame this very quickly globally. Australia, with the first major economic shock years ago had no Commonwealth debt. There was no federal debt. It had all been paid off and the production of the economy was running at high levels because there'd been 20 years of quite sound government. And, you know, I want to be fair about the Hawke and Keating government. They did a lot of good things. It was 20, 20 plus years of pretty sound government. There's been a lot of chaos since. We all know that. The Australian people have been despairing of it. But even now, we've been able to respond very strongly. This is a remarkable point, I think, to COVID-19 and to keeping the business going, businesses in hibernation, but still keeping people on the payroll. Not everyone I know, but the majority of people, and people have been very thankful and have marked the government up for it. But it should be understood that that's possible because the country was in good shape because of boldness and of hard-won reform back in the 80s and the 90s and into the early part of this century. Uh, we have to re-engage in that if we're to make sure that our children can cope with the next shock that will come along, because it will. They always do. So put it in some proportion, after the great financial shock of uh, 12 years ago, most countries' public sector debt went from around, roughly in the West, 40 to 60% of GDP to... 80, 90, 100, in the case of Greece, 175. Uh, Australia went from around, well, plus, actually you had negative net debt, if that makes sense, money in the bank, to around 20%. Still not too much to worry about, although it was growing faster than we would have liked and it, it represented a lack of discipline. It will now go to about 50%. It'll be up there with the levels of the countries that lost control of their economies in the GFC and then didn't fix it. Now, That's those, what we're talking about. those countries that were already steeped in debt, they are also increasing their debt. So yes. there's a global issue here, and uh, I know listeners are often wondering where does that money come from? And, uh, and of course, uh, central banks 
uh, create opportunities here to be able to uh, to provide uh, funding. Uh, but uh, so well, far as so, so you you have some thoughts on on where that money comes from and and uh, who ultimately uh, is to you know uh, sometime or other you've got to pay the the debt, don't you? Well, there's two arguments. It's very complicated, and all the old rules seem to be being suspended. And the trouble is now there's a big push now from some young people who are understandably feeling that the system's letting them down to say, well, you can just make money, you just print it, just just put more of it out into the economy. Um, now, what you've got now is a combination of borrowings. Um, for example, the Japanese have huge debt, but it's almost all borrowed from the savings of the Japanese people. Uh, a lot of American debt is actually American as well. Uh, but we've borrowed here and all over the world uh, through the issuing of bonds, uh, uh, selling of bonds, amongst other things. But we've, uh, but they've also seen right across the West a lot of creation of money. Now, the problem with creating money is that it's extremely dangerous because one day there's too much money in the system and people realise this $10 note is actually worthless. It's not worth $10 uh, because there's so many of them. And that's what happened, of course, in Germany in the 1920s. We should not kid ourselves. Debt is a problem. Printing money is a problem. Both can lead to catastrophic and have led to catastrophic economic failure in the past. And the victims are overwhelmingly the poor and the young. So we need to sober up and realise this can't go on forever. Over and above that, though, can I say, I mean, I think the great majority of Australians are itching to get back to work. So the name of the game is to try and make certain that we reorient the economy in whatever ways are necessary, including getting energy costs down and regulation down to revitalise small and medium and even large business. Uh, but that will require some difficult choices. We're going to have to make some tough calls about energy. It is simply not true to simply say, oh, renewables are cheaper than everything else at the moment. They're not. They're not reliable. You have to have such backup that they don't bring the cost of power down until you've worked out how to get continuity and reliability of supply because the sun and the wind only blow, in very rough terms, about a third of the time each. And some of those climate debates have died down a little while coronavirus has been dominating the headlines, but they are re-emerging now. And uh, and the way forward, even around energy policy and uh, climate issues, that is going to be a part of the future. Uh, let's not get into that because that can take us uh, quite deeply into uh, all sorts of other uh, directions. Let's come back to a reform agenda because you were a part of a reformist government and there's going to be needing this sort of reform into the future in the way that we are actually going to be able to contain the sort of debt levels that are looking to the average person like they're <laughs> going to spiral out of control. What sort of courage and prudence, as you mentioned a little earlier, are going to be needed in the leaders, perhaps so far as their own moral compass might go, as they look to emerge from this crisis? Well, I'd say blind ideology should be discarded, uh, but nonetheless, we should have clear principles. Uh, and the two clear principles should be that we need to rebuild confidence in the employment, in, the, in business and in employment to get people jobs, work, so they can live their lives and pay taxes. Uh, and the other clear principle uh, is, I think, that um, uh, we need to pay down that government debt over time, but not do it in a way that 
if you like, cripples the economy or compromises its ability to grow quickly because taxes do cost economic growth. So it's a difficult balance. Uh, I think what I'd say more than anything else is now is probably the time to have an honest debate about serious changes to the tax system. The last time there was a major reform in Australia was the introduction of the GST over 20 years ago, and that was a hot debate. But it's a small, that's small bickies compared to the debate we really need to have now. Um, even the GST probably needs to be revisited. I'll say it. I think the base needs to be broadened. The rate possibly needs to be increased, but it needs to be offset with lower personal and business taxes. One of the most immature debates we've had in this country in many years is about business taxes. People think, oh, no, big business should pay. But actually, they don't pay. Their shareholders and their workers pay. So we need to be clear that when we talk about business tax or the corporate tax rate, it's not businesses that are paying it. It's the people that work for them and the people who have the shareholdings. So that needs a much more mature debate than the one we've had. John, none of us likes to pay more tax than necessary, but we would recognise that more taxes are on the way. I wonder whether you've got any insight here from the political side, but also with the deep moral Christian conviction that you hold as to how a Christian ought to think about the taxation issues and the likelihood that these are going to change and not in our favour into the times to come. Uh, well, you know, it's a good question and a very important one. We should pay our taxes with a sense of responsibility uh, and even, I think, satisfaction that we're doing our bit for those who are in necessitous circumstances. Now, having said that, uh, and I don't have no insight into how the government is thinking at all, uh, although I should clarify, I am on a, a financial review board short term for the New South Wales government looking at how it interacts with the Commonwealth into the future. So I should declare that interest, but I don't have any insight anymore into how the federal government's thinking. So I can freely say that I think the things that need to be on the agenda, uh, frankly, are an increase in the GST with offsets for low income earners uh, and perhaps uh, a, a slicing of income tax so that you don't get taxed when you earn your money, but rather when you spend it. Uh, I think we probably need to revisit things like stamp duty because it holds young people back from getting into houses or moving to where jobs are uh, and replace them with some sort of land tax. We probably have to be um, realistic and address the issue of high wealth individuals who never move houses. Uh, This is a prickly one, uh, but uh, uh, what's happening at the moment is that younger people who have to move houses often to get jobs and to you know, grow up for a family and so forth, are paying a lot of taxes on their houses, a lot of taxes, and we need to lessen the burden on them. And that might mean that some people of my age have to pay a little more. Uh, So that's a prickly one, but I think it probably, in the issues of equity and going forward, it may be a reality. Uh, I do think that um, uh, we will have to be very, very careful about who is eligible for assistance so that we really are targeting it very carefully. Uh, and we are also going to have to make certain that we keep a lid on the number of people who work for the private sector, because in the uh, public sector rather, because in the end they have to be paid for people who they are pay, their wages are paid for people by people in the private sector. Now, one of the inequities of this current situation, and I don't mean any ill of public servants at all. Please don't hear it that way. But one of the inequities, one of the tough aspects of it, is that the private sector 
jobs are the ones that have disappeared. It's the people who work for the private sector, whether it's a small business or whether it's a cafe operator or whether it's somebody, you know, manufacturing parts for a factory down the road. There's a double whammy for them. The first thing is that their jobs have been exposed to risk. They're the ones who are really feeling the pain. Those who are on the public sector payroll, one for another, one form or another, including frankly politicians, um, need to realise that. And, 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 and the ABC, for example, which has taken some interesting positions, if I can say that, uh, during the COVID nineteen uh, downturn. Um, at first, they said we were racist for wanting to shut down the economy uh, and stop planes coming in from China, uh, and then they demanded we lock down even harder and put even more jobs at risk. So their position has been interesting and mysterious at points, I have to say. I think the ABC should have a very long, hard look at itself. And, um, and, and my that point here us... is a really important one. The people who has jobs are guaranteed by the public sector need to remember that it's all those people out there in the private sector that are paying for their jobs. So there needs to be a level of leadership in the public sector, which might reflect the crisis is quite serious and uh, needs to be shared. The burden needs to be shared by all Australians. Uh, yes. there's, let me ask you about, uh, let's move to uh, just a different area, running out of time, the idea of, uh, of welfare. Uh, which is going to need to be very strong beyond September. Uh, but welfare, this is a very different way that a conservative government might a- approach welfare. What are your thoughts for, for whether things be pared back or whether things be increased uh, beyond September? Because uh, there's going to be different needs uh, that different Australians are going to have and, uh, and some will be taking advantage of the welfare. Others, of course, will need that desperately. Yeah, it'll have to be very carefully targeted, and there are going to be many uh, ugly debates. Uh, Let's just hope we can keep to the facts, uh, and we can be logical and reasonable and fair, but that we can all recognise every one of us is going to have to make some sort of contribution, some more than others. This is not going to be easy. John, as I say, a few minutes remaining for our conversation, let's come back to emerging from an economic crisis And I wonder whether you've got some thoughts here on what good leadership looks like going forward, Uh, because uh, there may be something here, because perhaps we're not seeing great leadership from every one of our state or federal leaders at this time. What does good leadership look like if you're approaching uh, the the endeavour to emerge out of the crisis that we're in, the idea of restoration of confidence, the building of trust uh, so that people will trust the leaders and not have this mistrust that we've been uh, mentioning a couple of times there. But what does good leadership look like going forward? Uh, In my view, it looks like virtuous leadership and it looks like open and transparent uh, and communicative leadership so that people have the options put clearly before them. I'll tell you one of the great advantages of the, one of the great things to come out of this, we've learnt that you can't have multiple truths. What am I driving at? Uh, well, our universities teach that there's no absolute truth and that truth is what you want it to be. That, we don't think that. During the COVID uh, incident, uh, well, it's really become very noticeable. People want to know the raw truth. They want to know what's going on. They want to know what's true and what's not true. And they recognise some things are true and some things are not true. So you need truthfulness and you need integrity and people need, just as they are in wartime, you know, their morale needs to be kept up, uh, uh, but 
they broadly need to know what we're really fronting. That was a great thing. Churchill's leadership there was outstanding, and so was Franklin Roosevelt's. Absolutely outstanding. Um, and, and we need sort of transparency and truthfulness. Uh, we need to believe that um, the governments are being well advised and supported too. Now, this is a really critical point. Uh, I don't believe Australia's business leadership is in very good shape. And I think they particularly, a lot of them, have fallen victim to this idea, well, we know we're not liked and we're not trusted. So we'll try and look virtuous by doing lots of talking about the current social issues. Now, if you take the banks, while they were busily telling us how we should change this sort of uh, uh, social policy and that social policy, and if we were going to be good citizens and virtuous, we had to do X, Y, and Z, while we've discovered that they were providing channels for people to engage in child pornography or they weren't trustworthy with your dollars or they were not telling the regulator the truth. Now, there's a very powerful argument for return to genuine virtue. If you want to lead, people need to believe that you're being straight with them, that you can be trusted. So integrity, transparency, virtue and trustworthiness. As we said early in our conversation, people's identity is in different places to what we might think of when we're talking about Christians who have their identity in God, in Jesus Christ. When money is the only focus, people are very depressed when there is an economic collapse. There's more to flourishing, though, than just the finance side. I wonder whether there needs to be an adjustment of our own thoughts, our own attitudes, uh, the sorts of things, uh, the spirituality, the the emotions. What are your thoughts here for for the fact that uh, in order to get through the crisis that we're in and is likely to deepen, we're going to have to have more to us than just the idea of of making money? Well, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Um, From the Bible, of course. Look, we know from the research that once your basic needs are needs are met, money is, ceases to be an indicator of happiness and satisfaction. And I think a lot of Australians have probably learnt during this time uh, some simple pleasures again, time with family, time for reflection, time for walking with the kids and the dog. Uh, tragically, we know that many others have found that in coming together they've grown apart. Uh, and, you know, you're seeing, as I understand it, in many countries, a spike in divorce applications and a rise in domestic violence. So it's what you make of it and how you handle it, I think, has a huge amount to do with it. But uh, look, I, I think I would say that this has made me realise, uh, it's made me refocus a little, and I hope it has many others as well. I hope, that conti- I hope it continues, because I think it's a good thing, on what really matters. What really matters. In the end, we're relational beings, not just material beings. And we tried to deny that. And the other day I was uh, talking to my daughter about uh, uh, a mutual cousin and who, who was saying, no, 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 life's all about money. Fresh out of university, I want to make as much as I can because that's where happiness lies. Well, as Ravi Zacharias uh, says in one of his talks, you know, we get the loud applause and we sort of think, oh, there's really more than this. It's not filling me up the way I'd like. You get the big fat bank balance and that's what this young fellow's going to find one day. The numbers look fantastic on the bank statement and somehow you're still not satisfied. One of the things that happened in my long years in public life is I met some very, very wealthy people. I realised that some of them were unbelievably miserable and unhappy. And there are other people I met, it's not all wealthy people, I've got to say, but there are other people I had 
met a lot of them really who lived in the most humble of circumstances but they 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 had real joy in their lives they were satisfied and some of those things are needing to be relearned and as each of us reflect on some of those things as times develop and as the crisis deepens uh, not to be completely negative and I know there is room for optimism here and uh, the emergence from the coronavirus crisis both the health crisis and the economic crisis John Anderson we have run out of time it has been a pleasure having your insights today let me point people to your conversations now uh, there are an opportunity for uh, listeners to connect with podcast programs these conversations take you just that little bit deeper you have some fabulous guests real thinkers Uh, one of your more recent ones the reverend dr kenneth j barnes uh, who wrote a book called redeeming capitalism Uh, really fascinating insights ian mcfarlane the former governor of the reserve bank who reflects on Forgotten Australians, uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, Harvard and Stanford senior fellow and author, uh, tremendous insights into politics. And you've had philosophers like Peter Hitchens and uh, Jordan Peterson. Fabulous conversations. I'll point people to simply Google Conversations with John Anderson and you'll be able to access some great insights uh, into not only what's going on in the world, but how that applies to our Australian society. John Anderson, absolutely wonderful getting your insights today. Just quickly reflecting on that Facebook poll that asked the question, are you confident that our policymakers will set a course to a strong recovery when the stimulus ends? The answer, yes or no? The poll stands at 77% saying yes, confident in our policymakers, and 23% saying no. Uh, John Anderson, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.